You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept feeling this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome to another episode of the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and I'm really excited because today I have a Warren Holder from Raised Hunting, and I accidentally forgot to hit the go button here because we just started talking and started getting into some really cool topics about outdoor entrepreneurship. So I had to I had to cut Warren off and hit the hit the go button here so you guys could be a part of the conversation. Um, but with that, Warren, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great, man. I'm excited to be on here. You yeah, know, I think it's, I think it's really cool that you're doing a podcast that hits a little bit of a different category than everybody else. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do when I started this podcast. And crazy enough, man, I mean, I started buying podcast equipment a year ago, uh, June. We launched the first episodes in August, so it's been almost a year already, which is crazy to think how fast time flies. Haven't missed one yet, which is I can't believe, I can't believe with all the times and elk hunts and Canada fishing trips, I've been able to schedule them out and, and stay consistent. But yeah, exactly. I wanted, there's so many great podcasts already that talk about the hunting side of hunting or the fishing side of fishing. And I knew I was like, I, I'm not Steve Ranella. I'm not Giannis Patelis. I'm not, you know, Eric Clark or Warren Holder. Like I'm not that guy you know, so I don't want to pretend to be the next, you know, Ranella and try to mimic meat eater on that side of it. I wanted to be unique and, and I love business. I love entrepreneurship. I've got my own product business. I'm always looking at finances, economics, investments. And so I'm like, well, why don't I just marry up those two ideas? And then I started looking and there's like, like you said, there's not one out there. I know Eric Clark had one for a brief minute. And he was using it to do like lead generation for his business, which was great. But then he's like, yeah, I just didn't. We started focusing on OKS Hunter instead, and it's been good. So it's like, sweet. Well, yeah, I think it's, I think that's good. I think um, good for you to go and find something that is unique and a little bit different than what everybody else is doing. Cause most guys, that's all they, that's, let's just do another hunting podcast. Let's do another hunting podcast. And, you know, the, and we do a podcast too, but I think what makes ours, so much different than everybody else's is it's always um we have guests on there but it's always me my brother and my dad yeah and that's what makes it us there's not very many guys that have their brother and their dad there may be a few brothers but um not that many that are capturing that family dynamic on the podcast and that's why a lot of people i think really enjoy our podcast is because there's some aspect of it that is different you know it's not just strictly about the hunting side of it What's it? Yeah, what's interesting is it's different from other media, like podcasts or shows, but completely relevant to almost everyone in the outdoors. Like, everyone I know hunts with their yeah. dad. They hunt with their brother. They hunt with their family. Like, I've met very few people that were like, yeah, no one in my family hunts. I taught myself. Like, they're, they're out there, but most people, it's a hunting, it's a hunting sport. It's a hunting tradition um, in the family, and so you nailed it, and yet no one else is really taking that approach and i see like if you i don't know if you've seen barn talk the egg podcast mm-hmm. where i believe it's a like a, an operator and his son it's kind of the same thing just with farming like and it's wildly successful and it's probably because they hit that family dynamic aspect of it where most people are 
are doing it by themselves or doing it with a bunch of buddies. Yeah. That's, so it's all about eggs? Well, ag- agriculture, or, like farming. Okay. I thought you said eggs. I'm like, man, they must be really interesting to make an egg podcast that that's, is that's probably doing just, well. That's probably just my accent. The, the Minnesota accent. Ag, okay. Yeah, ag. Yep, I'm with you. Yeah. So, I'm with you. But yeah, like you said, it's different. It's makes it unique. And I feel like, you know, listening, I've seen a lot of your guys' clips. I must watch them to completion because the algorithm throws them right back at me. But you guys also talk about things that probably make people rethink what they wanted or what they thought. One of the, one of the examples was I always thought like, oh, man, I want – I want a 2,000-acre piece. Like, I want a big piece where I can control the herd. You know, high fence without a fence type thinking. And I think I heard yep. you guys talking about, like, I'd rather have 20, 20-acre pieces because one of them's going to have a giant every year. You might not grow a giant on the big piece for five years. Yep. Yeah, we actually – we had a kid on there with us. And I say kid, he's a kid. He's 21. But he's killed, like, seven or eight Boonacrock a deer already. And he's – not going and spending thousands of dollars on leases or he just spends all summer long getting to know these landowners and building relationships with them and getting permission to hunt these places. And, uh, you know, so we learned a lot of that from what he was seeing. And then, you know, every, we've had EHD roll through twice since we've lived in Iowa. Um, and you know, if you only have one farm and EHD comes through, you're, you're, you're screwed for at least a few years, most likely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the disease that cuts out like the one demographic you're most concerned about in the herd. You know, typically mature bucks. Just yeah, absolutely gone. And so it's going to force you somewhere else, probably. Yeah, that's yeah, we a- we try to just just take the stuff that you know a lot of people are talking about and and just take what we don't really care what the trends are or what uh, as far as what other people are saying. We just take our experience and things that we've done and we've seen. And we share that. We're not telling anybody that you need to go and do it this way or that you have to do this, but we're just going to, we'll, we'll be real with people and just say, well, we did this and this and this, and this has been our results so far. It worked really well or it didn't work at all. Um, and I think a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah, I, I think so, because that's, that's the life most people live. You know, most people are in that, I'm going to try to figure it out. It's either going to work or it's not. You learn as you go. I mean, I don't know if there's a better example for deer hunting than food plotting, right? Everyone sees the beautiful food plot on the outdoor channel or on the bag, and they're like, oh, I'm going to do this, and man, is it rough. Like, first year, you're breaking sod, that doesn't work, and then you're trying to, well, let's just spread it and let the rain work it in. I heard somebody said that works, and, well, you realize that doesn't really work at all, and, you know, it's it's just this constant evolution of, like, this is my story. Like, this is what we do. This is what works. This is what doesn't work. I don't care if you have a huge tractor and a grain seeder. Like, I don't have that, so I'm going to go with what I have. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, is that's what you got to do with everything though. Right. I yeah. mean, you can only, you can only learn so much from looking at something or watching it or reading it. You got to still go do it yourself and put it in play. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. We were talking a little bit before we started the podcast off about, I mean, you guys, you and your family have been doing this a long time. You, I mean, you said the show started 10 years ago. So yep, this I, is going to be our 10th season now. And so I assume just based on the fact that you don't look like you're a gray hair yet. So was your dad like the primary leader when you guys first started the show or were you and your brother saying, Hey dad, I think we should do this. No, it was definitely my dad. So I'm 27 and my brother's 23. He just turned 23 the other day. So when we started, you know, I was 16 and Easton was 12. 
Yeah. So we were still in school, you know, we didn't, um, I'd love to tell you that I was that smart and figuring that stuff out, but that's just <laughs> not true. I mean, I was, I wasn't really thinking concerned about anything to do with any kind of business or anything. Um, and I think it really is what it really came out of was kind of a necessity for my dad to be, to do something. He was a firefighter, a full-time firefighter. And then he herniated two discs in his back. And when he herniated those two discs in the back, he basically had a, you know, a forced retirement. Yeah. Right. They, they couldn't have him on the, on the department anymore because he was, could be a liability at that point. So now, you know, he was still only 42 or young in his early forties, I think maybe mid forties at the latest and is a, you know, pretty energetic guy has a lot that he wants to do and, and has, you know, had no job at that point, didn't know really what to do. And, uh, he'd worked, he'd been a pro staffer for Primo's for probably 10 years or so at that point and helped them and gone and videoed some of their stuff. And, um, I don't really know why he did that, what he, or, I mean, why he started filming everything. But from the time that I was eight, I filmed him shoot a Turkey when I was eight years old. And from around that time, I mean, all my life, my dad always had a camera, you know, and he was filming stuff. But when we were, I mean, from probably eight years old, like he has almost everything on, on film, almost every single animal that I've killed in my entire life is on video. Um, and so, and a lot of that was well before the show. And I don't know what, if, and there was never an intention that he was filming that for to go and make a TV show or anything. I think it was really just, he wanted to capture that and have that, those memories for himself. And he enjoyed the video aspect of it. So then by the time that we, we got into this position where, you know, he was looking for something to do. He'd always been passionate about the outdoors, huge hunter and was, and decided, you know, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and make a, make a show. And I've already got 10 years worth of footage. Yeah. And uh, so we did like a regional show. We lived in Montana at that time. So East and I grew up in Montana. We graduated from um, Iowa here, but we, yeah, I was, I lived in, Great Falls of Montana all my life till I was 16 um, or all Great Falls and then Whitefish for two years and we moved to Iowa but anyways so we had a regional show there that I mean he was just kind of figuring out how it worked learning all that and um, never didn't really do anything but just it gave him something to do and allowed him to put together some stuff from what we'd already captured then we moved to Iowa and he was quite a bit more serious about it at that point and he decided, he's like, you know, if I'm going to put something out there, I really want to go all in with it. And so we met, he started interviewing editors, basically, and found an editor that he meshed with really well and, and was willing to do the same thing. And when I say doing the same thing, meaning he didn't want to just do just another hunting show, you know, um, he really wanted to, to capture the family aspect of it and tell the story of hunting. And he felt as though this guy could do that. And that editor was... Um, was passionate about doing the same thing. And so then race hunting was born and we took it, the, he bit, built a pilot episode. We took that to the outdoor channel and they loved it. And fortunately at that time too, we had, I don't know, maybe four or five sponsors that were willing to back us before we ever even aired. And we, which one was Primo's they've been awesome partners for a long time now. Um, and so we launched and, and that was the beginning of race hunting. And now we're going to be going into our 10th season. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, 
maybe 10, you said almost 10 years of working in the industry as a brand ambassador, pro staff. Obviously, that's great connections, great momentum, filming the whole way, getting ready to, you know, how to use a camera full time, and then kind of have that magical little situation. I don't know what you call it. He probably called it more like a, you know, a clusterfuck or something when when he's like, oh, I got lost my job. Now I needed to figure out what to do, but, you know, kind of that sweet spot where you probably had time, energy, and money all at the same time, and now you had the motivation to do it, which is, you know, a lot of people have, like, one or two of those things, and and they're like, gosh, should I do it? Should I not? Right? Well, at first, I'd have to learn how to run a camera. Then I'd have to meet all these people. Then I'd have to do that. Well, it sounds like you guys had that great on-ramp, you know, that great momentum-building decade to really send it yep. full force when, you, when the time came. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was because he loved being a firefighter. You know, I don't think that he would have um, left being a firefighter necessarily to go and do this. I think if he was going to have done this, you'd have done still tried to be a firefighter and, and do this. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was, it was kind of that, that thing that pushed him and forced him to do it and then take the risk because it was still a risk, you know, you, that everybody, a lot of people don't understand, like on the outdoor channel, you got to buy your airtime. Yeah. So we, he still had to go and take the risk and say, I'm willing to, I'm going to front this money and hope that I can get sponsors or partners to help us cover these costs. So yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty big, big risk to take and, and try and do at that time, especially in a business that, you know, he'd worked with Primo's, but he really didn't have much experience in the, yeah in the business side of what, what it was going to take to do that. Right. Yeah. And I've, I mean, depending on what kind of show you do, right. I mean, I assume when you guys moved to Iowa, a lot of the episodes kind of happened more closer to home. Um, you know, on your own farms, doing turkey, shed hunting, whitetail hunting. But, like, if you're back in Montana and you're doing a bunch of western hunts, now not only is it all the other stuff, but now you got to find someone that's willing to walk around with a camera with you. Then you got to get the tags. you got to get the forest lease or the permits to film on forest land. you got to – I've heard people that have western hunting shows tell me, you know, offline, it's like twenty five grand an episode to release a, to do right. a western hunting show. You know? Yeah, I mean it's um it just depends on how much you're putting into it, you right. know. But I like that's why a lot of people are always wondering why does why these guys always hunt in private and everything? Because if you don't go get the right permits and everything out yeah. west, it's more expensive to go hunt public <laughs> than it is to go hunt private. Yeah. You know, but because they, they treat it, I don't know why they do it that way, but they treat it as like your Toyota or Chevy coming in there to film a commercial you know and you're going to be driving trucks over things and all kinds of stuff and um you know and so they want they they bill it as though you're make you're making money off of this as a commercial enterprise right yeah where we're hunting and and filming it we're not we're not doing anything to the ground we're not tearing anything up you know but that they don't care they're going to charge you the same so yeah yeah it can add up real fast yeah you're probably not leaving the same impact on the land filming your elk hunt as Yellowstone is doing a cattle drive and trucks and movie crews and all these trailers. I wouldn't think so. Our <laughs> but, budget doesn't let us, we, we can't afford a chopper and everything else to be filming our stuff. Yeah. I wish. Yeah. No kidding. That'd be great. And so yeah. when you launched the, the, the show, you said you went to the outdoor channel. Are you guys still on outdoor or have you started switching to digital platforms? We still are on outdoor channel. Okay. Um, but we've definitely put a major emphasis on our digital. So we've kind of always had a, a pretty good presence on social media. My dad and I 
we'd managed it. We had a hundred thousand people on our Facebook page before we'd ever even launched the show. And all we were doing was really just posting stuff that we were doing, right? We were hunting and um, anything that really related to other people. And at that time, I mean, we, we were getting stuff to grow and, and do well, but we didn't really know what we were doing, right? We didn't right. know how we'd managed to do that. Um, looking back now, we have a much better idea of what it is that we were doing. And then that's why our show did so well, um, too, because we related to so many people on the family aspect of it. You know, there, we get, we get hundreds, I mean, really pray thousands of emails, thousands of emails for sure. At this point of people, you know, who said, you know, that really resonated with me. I lost my dad or this, my dad and I go hunting every year and we do this, or me and my brother, we go and do this. Um, you know, and I can relate to you guys because that's where we bond, you know, lots of guys where we have lots of people that we don't, we don't get to see each other hardly once a year, but when we do, it's a deer camp. Um, that kind of stuff. And that's what made our show so powerful. You know, I mean, it really, really did make a, um, a big impact because so many people could relate to it. And so that's what I was telling you before we started the podcast is, you know, I feel like in the, the last year or two, we really been have that we've been making work on this digital transition as well. Um, we're still on the TV side and there's still quite a few people, I think, on the TV side that aren't on digital, you know, there's kind of a two, two separate, yeah. separate audiences there. Um, I'm sure, you know, obviously digital is the future. That's where it's going to go. It's where everything will end up. But I, I still think too, that there's not necessarily a, a great or the perfect platform out there for outdoor content. And I guess maybe I should say hunting content. Cause you still run the risk on YouTube or anything else of people being of them being able to demonetize it or, um, you know, they're not hundred percent pro hunting. And so I think that there's going to be something at some point that is going to feel to need to fill that need for the outdoor content world to have a, a place to be able to host all of our content, um, where we don't have to worry about offending people or, you know, them being able to pull the plug on, on the monetization or even be able to just delete it at that point. So I think that yeah, there's going to be something there. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've, I mean, so Randy Newberg, he was on YouTube and he was like, "I'm sick of it, man." I mean, they they demonetize all of our videos. They're taking them down. We have no control. For every now and then, they lock our account, and we're not doing anything bad. I mean, if anyone knows Randy Newberg, he's like the gold standard of how to do things properly, right? He never cuts corners on a on a permit to film in the forest all this stuff is stuff is quality and if youtube's going to take his stuff down like how do you make it as an up-and-comer trying to just you know pave your way so he just built his own platform he's like i'm sick of it i'm going to build my own platform there's going to be no advertising on there that isn't someone i work with you know i'll you you're not going to see ads for some random company and i have the control and it, it's expensive it's incredibly expensive i'm sure to build your own you know oh, amazon fire tv app um, but then you see other services. I was going to ask you about this. So like my outdoor TV or carbon TV, those apps waypoint, is that a, is that a viable option or is there things about it where it's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's better than YouTube for censoring, but on the business side or something, it just doesn't make sense for us. Is that kind of what you're thinking? Um, you know, I don't, I think that so I think that it's going to be really, I think it's going to have to basically be a Netflix um, 
copy for the outdoor space, mm. you know? And I think the reason that that is, is I think that is what you're always going to have people get really irritated with the sponsored portion or of people working with other companies. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, it's impossible to do what these guys are doing. Right. The hunting public, us, um, any, anybody that's doing this full time, you have expenses and you have to have ways to cover those expenses. You know, I do think that a subscription model could cover that. You know, you could be able to get to where like Netflix, you you're able to pay creators for that content. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think there would need to be there would need to be some way though to find the new guys, right? The guys that like that are able that's a great thing about YouTube is anybody can go on there and, and post content and build a name for themselves, right? I think there needs to be something for that. I don't know exactly what that what that platform looks like or how to do it. I think that um, you know, obviously you're probably not gonna get that with MOTV because they're they're controlling what the content is there yeah um so and i have honestly i haven't i can't speak much to the carbon tv side because i haven't spent much time looking at that in the last um recently yeah i hear what you're saying there is challenges it's almost like you need two things almost it seems like you need the you need like the new boots playlist on Spotify so you can find new artists, right? But for hunting, right? And that's what YouTube is. It's a great place to go test your oats and see if you got what it takes. Are you interesting? Do people like watching what you make? But then it seems yep. like that's that's the short term because if it works, you get big. But then once you get big, if you're in the hunting space, then you start getting censored. So then it's like yep. you got to get that audience to move to a new platform. And even Netflix, like you said, is great for the business side, but not great for the censorship side. I don't know how me- mediator got that figured out but they're like one of the only hunting shows on netflix right yeah i don't know either well and that's i think the the issue is i don't think you can have just one it's going to take you know a combined effort right of lots of outdoor creators and lots of the big ones saying all at the same time hey we're all going to jump ship and we're all going to go make our make our um, own platform because nobody wants to nobody wants to go usually to one platform right right so everybody's always whining about sports i don't want to have to go and, and get the nfl app and then get the mlb app and then get the nba app you know like just give them all to me in one place or if i pay for prime i don't want to have to then go on prime and then i have to go and rent a movie right you know like it's <laughs> it's it's and i think that's where you're seeing now is that's still a power struggle in the mainstream on that who knows how long it'll be until the outdoor space figures it out. You know, we're always, we're always the old cats. We're always several years behind. So I don't know what it looks like, but I think that there'll be a, a time that it changes. And I think that investing in your own audience and, and trying to create the best relationship that you can and cater to your own audience and serve them is the best thing that you can do at this time without a doubt. Yeah. And, and so how long into the show did you start the podcast? Cause I feel like the podcast really allows you to to expand on the audience and the and the the viewers listeners because you know in the show it's like you got like you said 22 minutes we got to get certain things in right we got to do the intro we got to do the storyline we we got to wrap it up there's only so much time for us to get creative in the middle and talk about what we want to talk about but then you go to the podcast and then that's free reign we can talk about whatever we want we could bring in we can bring in a listener or guests or read off emails and connect on that deeper level um and i'm sure that's probably what you've seen but how long have you been doing the podcast side of it we only started the podcast last august so the podcast i guess um similar to yourself it's still fairly new to us but we've really enjoyed that because yeah it's a completely different take you know before in the show 
we don't really get to to show anything that we learned or discuss any of the stuff that we've had experience wise or um, or be able to respond directly to what people are asking, you know, because we're like you said, it's a production. We're making we're, we're creating a production, creating that show. Um, you know, you can only you can only go so far off base there before it's random, you know, right. Uh, where the podcast, we can really dive into these different subjects and and cover them. So, yeah, the podcast, I think and it's it's been amazing to me how much how much of a connection that does build with your audience you know because we have lots of people that it really resonates with them and and then they're sending us topics all the time now we used to you know we we'd kind of pick our own topics now we're pretty much to a point where basically our audience is providing us the topics every week you know we have people send us in questions and things like that and then um and we dive into those things and you know like i you know i told you before we really aren't we're not telling anybody that this is how you need to do it or this is what you should be doing we say this is our experience with whatever that may be and and this is what we've been doing and this is what's worked for us so yeah it seems like it it does seem like our our demographic or genre or category of of media or entertainment the people that watch it really love being told what to do and that they're doing it wrong right <laughs> so yeah that don't work at all like oh this is how you do a mock scrape well you'll get 50 emails in 50 different ways of why they do it different and and so that's all you really can do at the end of the day is just say hey you know at our farm we've been doing this and it didn't work you know we're, we're gonna quit doing it and then we've been doing this other thing and that's we've really liked doing that so we're gonna do more yeah. of this and, and then people get to be like oh you know then you just let them go oh I bet that would work on my farm versus if you tell them, then they're like, no, that's not how we do it at my farm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess we're probably one of the best examples for that would be we, uh, we went over the whole heavy arrow topic, right? Oh yeah. And yeah, that one, that one can be a bit, bit touchy right now. And we've done that. Like I've hopped on the heavy arrow train before. And when I say heavy, like, you know, 520 grains. And my problem with it was I missed two bulls because I was off by three yards or four yards on whatever I guessed the yardage at. Mm. And then I got to a point to where for me personally, it wasn't worth having that much drop for that much weight, you know, to have a 500 grain arrow. And so then, you know, I've killed five or six elk with 430 grain arrow. We've had no issues. And that's just my experience. I'm not saying, Hey, you, you shouldn't shoot an arrow. That's 500 grains or more. I'm just saying, I'm not good enough to guess the yardage to the yard every time that I don't have time to range. And so I want a little bit lighter arrow that gives me the speed to be off and make a mistake. Yeah, no, I hear you there. Um, and it's, that is a great topic of like, how you know, broadhead, same thing. Like, should you shoot a fixed blade or a mechanical? If should you shoot single bevel or dual bevel? Everyone's got an opinion. I don't care. I like, I like, I like my arrow built like a Mack truck. And I'm a, yep. I'm a big guy. I have a 31 inch draw, 70 pound bow. So I'm shooting, when you said heavy, I'm like, oh, he's probably talking 650 grains, right? Yeah. Because I'm at, I think 590 right now with the two blade fixed. And so I build my arrows to put two holes in an elk. It's simple as that. I want to get two holes in an elk. I don't care. If someone came up with new science, like, you know, new science, but authentic testing and said, hey, actually faster arrows are a better chance of putting two holes in an elk. I'll be the first to switch, but that's why that's my arrow. Well, when I get to the whitetail woods, I don't want to mess with different sight tapes and, and stuff. So I'm shooting that 590 grain arrow at does 15 yards away from my tree stand in the food plot. And I, it's kind of nice knowing like, I can, I can nick that front shoulder and this thing will still 
very into the food plot, you know? So that's just my yep. stance on it. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. It works for you. Yeah. And it helps too having a 31 inch draw length. Yeah. I'm a, there's I'm no... a short guy. I don't get to do that. How, what's your draw length? 28. Oh, that's not terrible, you know? No. But compared to 31, I mean, I bet you you pick up a lot of feet per second when you got a draw length like that. 30. I mean, it's 10 per, 10 per inch, roughly. I mean, most bows, I think it's like 10 per inch. So Really? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it helps. Lot. But, you oh, know, at yeah. the same side, I had a I had an ex-girlfriend in high school, and we tracked a wounded buck. We knew a, a big, like a 150-10. He was 154. got hit by a car on our farm, and he was just living basically in our corn food plot. And so it's Christmas. And we went out. I already filled my tag, so she went out with her bow. Me and her, she spot and stocked it on. You know, spot and stocking a whitetail in Minnesota is not really what you think about. <laughs> but she walked right. right up to it in the six yards away in the cornfield and shot it quartering two. She had a twenty-five inch draw, a forty-two pound bow, and it was not like a Hoyt, you know, RX seven. It was a Mission craze. And she, right. she, we had to pass through. I mean, she went right through the front shoulder, three blade, Hellraiser, fixed blade. I mean, so when people start talking like, oh, you need this or need that, I just think back to that story. And yeah, sure, that buck was a little skinny. He was in tough shape, but she went right through that front shoulder and came out the belly button and, you know, yep. passed through, found him 40 yards away. So it's like, eh, I think pretty much anything works if you put it where it needs to be. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. That's the biggest thing is making sure you're accurate. Oh, Make yeah. Sure. I wish I wish the mechanicals were a little bit more rugged because I'd love to shoot them, but, man, I just – I worry – and I know a lot of people do it. Someone's going to write it and be like, oh, I killed every elk I've ever shot with a rage, but I just worry. I worry about – Yeah. someone once told me if your elk hunt hinges on a broadhead, shoot a broadhead that doesn't have hinges. Right. And so – Well, I can, I can write in if you want because I've killed every elk I've shot with a mechanical. Really? But they're accurate. Uh, they are accurate. There's no doubt are. about it. That's, I just <sighs> well, and that's why I spend the amount of time shooting that I do, is because I'm not gonna hit. I'm not gonna hit the shoulder on an elk. I mean, as long as I'm as long as I'm taking a shot that is within my effective range, which to me is really 40 or under. Yeah, I'm not worried about hitting the shoulder. I mean, I've got. There's no reason I shouldn't be hitting that at all. Um, and so I'm I'm more going into the confidence of that of one, I want a stout, I want a stout mechanical still, you know, I don't want right. something flimsy, but at the same time, I'm yeah. making, I'm waging my bets and then I'm going to hit where I'm aiming and I'm going to do my job right. instead of having to try to be concerned of if this happens, this could, this could happen or if that happens. And I did, I shot I, my biggest bull ever. I killed two years ago in Wyoming and I, my arrow was, I think it was a 422 grains or something like that and a, a two-blade mechanical, and I got a pass-through Okay. at 30 yards. Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, it's doable, so maybe I could switch, but what I have works, so, you, you know, you can't break yeah. break if it's not, uh, you can't, don't fix it if it's not broke, man. Still, well, I'm not asking you to switch. It's <laughs> like you're not asking me to switch, you know? I would just ask to uh, give me a call when it's time to pack out, be a part of the, be a part of the story. Yeah, yeah. I, you can help me pack out. I don't want to have to help people pack out. I, I, this is business, right? I'm going to charge for that. That's the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't mind pack outs. Although on this, I don't know how well you can see it, but that bull down there, uh, that was a North Dakota grain fed bull. And man, I'll tell you what, it seems like in my experience, elk 
get a lot bigger when they got wheat and corn and alfalfa to eat on all summer long. No wolves or grizzlies to to chase them around and and like only eighty tags a unit to chase like pressure them. That thing. Was I was gonna say, is can anybody draw a North Dakota tag? Only North Dakota residents, and even then, it's less than one percent. So how did you get to go? Um, you were a North Dakota resident at that time. Yeah, I went to college in North Dakota and then got a job up there. And uh, and uh, I actually I missed the app the first year, kicking myself. I thought it was with the deer, but it was like two months earlier. So I missed the app the first year. The second year I would live there it was my first year to apply, and I drew it. Really? And I made the mistake of telling my boss's boss at work, and he goes, "I've been applying for that tag for thirty years." Yeah, but they hated you. And I was like, "Ooh, sorry, I'll." Bring you some back straps if I shoot something. <laughs> they don't have a bonus point system or anything. No, or for the big points, not the, for the big three. It's just straight random. Once you draw, you can't really? ever apply again. So it's once in a lifetime. That looks like a big bull too. Yeah, that one was three fifty four. He was eight and a half oh, years old. Mandatory tooth aging. I weighed every quarter. So the first pack out I did, I did a, a rear and a front. And when I got home, the rears were 82 apiece and the fronts were 64 apiece. So another thing of telling people, like hearing all this debate, everyone's like, oh, 100-pound packouts on a quarter of an elk. It's like, eh, no, not really. I mean, not unless maybe you shoot a rosy. Those things are big, but, like, that was the right. biggest elk I've ever seen in our group. And he was only 82 on the rear and 64 on the front. So that's a long ways from 100, you know, especially on the front. Yeah. So. Yeah, that, yeah that's. Only 64 on the front quarters, huh? And they were, I mean, they were big. So, like, when the raghorns or the satellites we usually shoot, I'm guessing those things are probably closer to 50, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's all we just, we all, we by the time it's loaded, we're like, man, that's got to be 100 pounds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially if you don't train for it. That summer I trained hard. I mean, I brought, I left my pack frame at the gym. And every day after weightlifting, I'd put the pack frame on, and I I got up to three plates on a treadmill or two plates on the stair climber, and I yeah. just hammer out some cardio. So by that time, that that I think it was one forty six felt good, and it was North Dakota. Well, that's why you must have weighed it. You were like, man, these are light. But, yeah, so it kind of was. One well, everything was just I, by that point, I had been a part of a few packouts with with like over the counter archery bulls, so mostly raghorns. And the proportions on everything were off in my mind. The the neck was like it just looked like you know a, a, like a hog at a barn. That's you know, like the state fair hog, where you can see the his back straps or his pork chop muscles, and everything was huge. The back straps were like they're like t bone sized steaks, and so now I'm starting to get concerned. Like, what is all this stuff weighing? So I weighed it. Like each back strap was 20 pounds. Uh, there was 40 pounds of neck meat on each side because it was September 8th, like just yeah. right before the rut. Like I said, he was eating irrigated alfalfa all summer long. Yeah, it was public land, but there's just lots of farming. And then I weighed like his tenderloins were five pounds a piece. Jeez. Yeah. Jeez. Did you de- did you debone him? Yeah, I quartered him the in quarters? the field. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So like, I didn't. I didn't get into the quarters as well. No, no, I did bone in quarters. I it was okay. So that so that was eighty four with a bone in, huh? But yeah. Yet the the back straps were twenty pounds. Yeah. Well, they were like that's crazy. I mean, they were like forty five inches long. It was insane how yeah. long they were, and they were like this big around the whole way. I cut right. I, I cut the, because the next week I had a Montana hunt, and so I'm like, oh, you know, it'd be great for a Montana elk camp. Bring some elk steaks. You know, and so I yeah. cut 10, like, 
inch and a half thick stakes out of one backstrap and it only used up like half the backstrap. Dang. Yeah, that's a big bull. It was huge. That's it, a big bull. There was a lot of meat. Like, you, it, I think a lot of people just are off on what 80 pounds of meat looks like. Oh, I would bet you got to be, you got to be right. I've never even thought about weighing one, you yeah. know, and I bet most people haven't either. But that, so that's interesting. But I bet you're 100% right. We People are just probably off on what they think they weigh. Yeah. Like, I've, I've after that, I've never seen a whitetail buck or doe we've shot that had 80 pounds of deboned meat on the whole whitetail. Right. So it's like each quarter was a whitetail. Yeah. <laughs> Plus all the trim. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's wild. So they're big. Yeah. Those suckers are big. And that was an Ooh. easy pack out. I mean, it was a mile and a quarter, but it was relatively easy terrain. And I did four, right. I did four trips myself the first day. My dad packed out the back straps for me, but he was, he was getting a little older and out of shape or not out of shape. He's just 72 and he wasn't training for an elk hunt. So <laughs> I didn't, Right. Asked, I didn't want to ask too much of them or have like an ankle issue, you know, roll an ankle back there. So, yeah, I did most yep. of it myself. And, yeah, yeah, it is a lot of weight by the time you get done with it. So, for sure. Yeah. But um, that brings up a good question, though, on the Western hunting. So, for the show and I guess the, just everything you guys produce, how much of it is Western hunting versus now that you're in Iowa, is it primarily whitetails? Whitetails is probably. 70 percent we still go out west every year and we usually do at least an elk hunt um my little brother just got back from idaho on a bear hunt spot stock bear hunt uh so we still probably do 40 percent or so we used to when we moved to iowa it was still a lot easier to get tags in montana you know back then you could still get a tag yeah. as a non-resident every year now it's not quite that easy so um but i'd say probably 70 percent is is whitetails in iowa you know, it's kind of hard here to, to get away from everybody's always, Oh, come, come hunt deer here. Come hunt deer there. And I'm like, man, not when we got it. You just can't beat Iowa. Not during, not during the good times, you know, we went during late October, November, I don't want to go anywhere else, but 60, probably 70, 60%, 70% is whitetails. And then the rest is, um, Western stuff. Okay. So we got an elk hunt every year. Yeah. Usually at least one. That's probably the demographic though, of the outdoor viewership, you know, 70%. I mean, the the, mar- the hunting market's driven by whitetails. Oh, absolutely. Right. For sure. 100%. And the, the fishing market's, you know, inland's driven by bass. All, uh, offshore is obviously different, but, you know, as funny right. as it is, like, bass are the ones that drive the fishing market, and no one really eats them. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. But they're fun to catch. Yeah, they are fun to catch, man. To them. Yeah, they're fun to yeah. catch, and they're everywhere. Um, but, yeah, so – 70% whitetails. And so the question I really wanted to get to is, are you guys filming, because there's three of you on board full time, or is there more now? I just heard your dad and your brother in conversation. So my far. dad, me and my dad and my brother are all full time. And then um, we have two full time camera guys as well. Okay. Camera guys, editors that are, that are in house. Yep. That's what I was wondering is if you guys are just one person's filming while the other two are hunting and we just always trade off, or are you going out with camera guys? Because that, it's one thing I don't know. I guess now I'm thinking about it. I don't know which one would be harder because like whitetail hunting at home, you're probably hunting almost every day. Absolutely. So you need that camera guy almost every day. So like I said, you probably got to hire him in house versus like, it'd be probably easy to be like, Hey, I need you for this week for an elk hunt. Can you do it? And they're like, yeah, I'll do it. But then you got to bring them with you for a week. So that's another challenge. Well, 
And and the biggest part for us now at this point is that we need so much content yeah. all the time. It would be impossible for us to be able to create all the content and be getting it out on all these platforms and, and pushing things out all the time, just us. Um, I mean, we just wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do it. Between working with partners, creating our own products, um, order fulfillment, things like that, there's no way that we would be able to also do all of the all of the content creation, all the editing, all the videos, um, all of the all of the posts. I mean, it doing the podcast. So we have to have some guys in house. And so now, and it's way easier for us to be able to have two guys full time, you know. And and we're able to tell them, all right, we're going elk hunting at this time, and yeah. we're going to go here at this time. Um, which and they love it too, you know, because they're getting to they're getting to travel and and hunt for a job. So they're they're pretty stoked about that too. If you guys get the work done early, do you let them pick up a bow or a rifle and, hey, have at it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Eli had a bear tag in his pocket, too, in in Idaho on this last trip. Um, And then sometimes, I mean, sometimes we'll even put them first. Nick, one of our camera guys, he'd never killed a, he was really, he was interested in hunting, right? Yeah. Um, And had done some waterfowl, but never really had anybody to take him until he started working with us. And so for turkeys, he never killed a turkey or anything. And, and so we put him up first, you know, and, and he smoked a Jake and was absolutely stoked about it. And then he killed his first deer with a bow this last year as well. So yeah, they get to, they get to hunt too. You know, um, we gotta do, we gotta do work first, but they're, they are next on deck. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought about like watching jury outdoors and be like, man, Wade and Forrest picked really good employers. You know, yeah. it took them probably a long time and a lot of hard work, but now they're like stars of the show and they're getting to shoot too. I mean, obviously I think the guys probably keep the giant giants closer to the family. You got to have the right last name, but still to be able to be a part of that crew is amazing. Um, so that's what I was kind of curious about with the camera guys, but, but it's obviously not something where if you want to start your journey, it's not, you're not starting with two guys in house, of, of course. So, what do you what are your no. thoughts on someone, you know, listening to this podcast today? They've been thinking about, man, I'd love to do this. Maybe they're already watching Raised Hunting and following you guys and thinking like that's the dream. What's your thoughts on like what would be can it's is it still possible and how would you start if you had to start today? Would it be just doing like selfies and trying to grow socials first? Would it be doing long format YouTube? What would what's your thoughts on that? Um yeah, I think it's absolutely still possible for sure. However, it's a lot different landscape today than it, than it was 10 years ago. You know, I think, um, I think a lot of people don't realize, in my opinion, if I could have had it my way, we'd have been in, in, in really into this space 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because at that time, you know, there wasn't, you worked with partners and sponsors and, and TV was really the biggest advertising outlet, right? And so everybody had... Um, marketing budget to spend on tv it was just who are we going to spend it with now you have all of these different platforms to cater to and all these different things that you're going to have to pay attention to to try to grow your audience um so the number one thing i would tell people is the first thing that i think that you need to do if you're if you wanting to grow an audience and get into the space and be trying to be in the outdoor space full time is i think you need to identify what that means to you you know is that is that having your own product line like mm-hmm. you do and be building that product line and growing that product line? Um, or is that trying to be grow an audience and, and helping other companies market or just be an influencer? I hate that term, but 
you know, I guess I got to use it in this instance. Right. Right. Um, and if that is your goal, then you need to find what it is that is unique about you. What is it or your platform? What is it that makes you different from everybody else? Why should, why should anybody pay attention to what you're doing opposed to what everybody else is doing? Um, and then the second thing I would say with that is if you're going to be trying to offer information or give tips or provide info on things, make sure you've been there and done that, you know, cause people have a wonderful BS radar, even though they don't get credit for it. People will know if you're full of shit or not. Yeah. And so as soon as you start trying to say, Hey, you know, if you want to call elk in, you need to hit a cow call 476 times in three hours or they won't come, you know, people are going to know this dude doesn't know what he's talking about and you're never going to be able to go anywhere. So you need to be authentic. And if, if that means that you don't have that experience right now, then you need to see how would I, how would I capitalize on that? Either one, you need to just go out and get that experience. Give yourself the time and the opportunity to learn those things yourself or two, be transparent with your audience and say, Hey, look, I don't know what I'm doing yet and I'm trying to figure it out and I'm going to bring you guys along the journey to learn with me. And as I learn things, I'm going to let you guys, I'm going to bring you guys in on the information that I've learned. Um, so that would be my take on that is, is, be unique, be honest, and be transparent. That yeah. would be what I would tell you you need to be doing. And then, too, if you're trying to do it full-time and you're going to try to be, a, let's say, an influencer, you need to make sure that you're realistic and you have an idea on how you're going to monetize it. Because if you think you're going to be an influencer and you're going to get 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers and all of a sudden that's going to make you hundred grand a year, um, that's not realistic. I think that... You might want to really check what your goals are because it's not as simple as, Hey, I get a lot of followers. I make a lot of money. The people, I think most people would be really surprised on, on what those real numbers probably look like. Yeah. I'm a very strong advocate and I'd say it all the time on this podcast. Don't quit your day job just yet. You know, like yeah. unless you have crazy circumstances, like you're, you're married to someone that has an incredibly high income and they would love it for you to quit your job, you know, wife or husband either way and chase your dreams that's different i you know, a lot of us aren't in that position we need to keep bread on the table so you know don't quit your day job yet but at the same token like it's probably not if you're just starting out like there's no reason like you don't have the same requirements and time commitments that like you and your family are doing right you know we're not doing full-time hunts we're not doing you know every single day lifestyle content you know this is what we're doing at the farm today you can probably manage it by yourself and work your day job you know Oh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should definitely be able to. Um, and then a lot of our stuff comes from everything else, all the other business aspects of it that go along with, with having right. employees and, um, you know, having a full-time business. I think you can, I would, if I was going to, if I was going to have to start all of it right now, you know, and had um, nothing else to work with, I'd be, I would probably be focusing on trying to I'd probably be focusing on short form content then leading to long form content. Um, I think that your long form content, you're probably going to do a better job as far as really engaging with that audience, but it's going to take a lot longer to find an audience. You start building up your short, your short form audience and, or short form content. You can start to build up that audience and then be serving them with long form content. Yeah. Um, that's probably where I would start. And then I would be trying to find out who is my audience. Who is it that I want to speak to? Is it new hunters? Is it experienced hunters? Is it 
hunters that don't have that also have a full-time job like working class bow hunter those guys are a great example of a group that related to a specific niche and did a wonderful job of of then capitalizing on that and growing it Mm -hmm. because they can speak that same language you know um so i think that that's what i would be looking at starting and i the number one thing i would remember i would try to remind people is is in that instance of, of an influencer you are your product so just like an entrepreneur that says i'm gonna go and launch this product well you're partial to your product so you better make sure that people like your product and have a good product before right. you wage all your bets on it yeah because to the to the market you need to let the market decide the market may tell you no it's a crap product right and at the end of the day that's who decides that's who's correct so whether we like it or not that's where you're that's who's going to judge on whether whether it's worth it or not and so you need to make sure that you figure out who that market is and and that you are serving your market and doing what they want yeah yeah and i, I would just say like be okay with taking it slow and doing it right doing it organic you know, don't dive in, get burnt out. Don't go down a rabbit hole chasing views and likes and then become someone you're not. Like, all those things aren't sustainable. And and you like no. I like what you said, like, st- setting a realistic expectation. Like, maybe your first goal is, like, I would love to be able to pay for a hunt. Like, just yeah. one hunt. I'd love to be able to do this, and that pays for my elk hunt. Solid win for the Absolutely. year. Maybe next year I pay for two hunts. Maybe the year after that I'm paying for all my hunts and my fishing trips. But I'm not really... I'm still doing my job. It's just, you know, what I'm doing anyway is now cheaper or free. And then it's like, okay, now we're getting to the point where I'm making some money. I'm running out of time. It's conflicting with my, you know, my home life or my work life. I, I, you know, I don't have enough bandwidth to take it on all, take all of it on. Now we can start talking about like, is it time to jump ship and go full time? Yep. And, and I would encourage anybody that wants to do that you should do it, you know, pursue, right. pursue your dream for sure. But make sure that you're also being realistic and that you're ed- and paying attention to what the market's telling you, because at the end of the day, it's not, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you want. It's if somebody's not willing to pay for your product, that's the value of your product. You know, you've got to make that product that they want and that, that the market is willing to, because at the same time, they can make you a millionaire. You know, they may, t- t- they may right. say this is the best product that's ever been put on the market and everybody's willing to buy it and put their money behind it, you know? And, and so that's, it's a really honest self-assessment, you know? And I think on the, on the social side of one thing I would be telling people, I say it all the time, there's a huge difference between reaching an audience and having an influence. There's a huge difference in those two things Yeah, because you can go look at a meme page, right? There's all kinds of meme pages and they probably reach on just say Instagram alone, half million, million, right. two million more accounts a month, right? And so if you were a, somebody going and saying, man, should I go and, and put money behind this meme page or should I go and put money behind this athlete? Well, I guarantee you when that meme page says, hey, go buy this, nobody's going to do that, right? Right. Because there's no credibility there. There's no relationship built with that audience they think their stuff is funny right and and they may like it and they may share it but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to trust that person right so that would be an example of they reach an audience but they don't necessarily have an influence do you feel like in your experience you've seen there's a lot more traction and engagement 
with the person, not the product. So for your example, it might be kind of confusing because your product is your family. But for someone, just the average show, it's like it's not necessarily that they have the best show or the best video quality or the best hunt, but it's it's the person behind the camera or the person behind the, the name. It's like that's who they connect with. They resonate with that person, and that's why they're engaged to the show or that's why they're willing to go buy a product is because the person behind it is someone they trust versus just, ah, that's the best show. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I mean, hunting public is the perfect example of that. And in my opinion, I mean, I know those guys and they're good guys. Me personally, I, I, I wouldn't watch their stuff because I mean, I've watched it, some of it and seen some stuff, but it's not the one. I don't really watch TV any kind of TV in general right? Um, to, if I'm going to watch something, it's going to, I don't, I don't watch outdoor related content, you know, cause I do it. You do it for a lot. Yeah. Yes. And so I would rather watch something sports or, or cars or something else, you know, I mean, really, I just put on, it drives my girlfriend nuts cause I'll put stuff on TV, but I don't actually watch it. You know, it's just background noise. I right. like background noise, but I don't pay any attention. She'll ask me, Oh, what's this about? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not sure where they're, what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> but I think that their stuff, you know, they definitely don't have the highest production quality. They're not using, you know, super expensive cinema camera, um, camera equipment. And, but people connect with them and yeah. they relate with them. And that's why they're definitely, they're super powerful and they're good dudes. And people identify with that. Um, you know, and I'll tell you right now, though, me personally, that's one thing where, with our brand. And that's part of the reason that we're really focusing on building some of our own products as well, that we've taken time and we've experienced you experiment with them and use them and know that they work is because that all those have a, have a lifespan on them, right? Yeah. You can only, people can only Aaron Warburton is only gonna be able to do this for so long. And Ted's only gonna be able to do it for so long. Right. And maybe he's going to have kids or whatever, you know, and, and, when you lose that person, you just lost part of that company. Right. Right. Because that is their company at this point, the hunting public, which is really those guys. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what they want, that's more power to them. For me personally, I want to be able to build a brand that does not necessarily need me or my dad or my brother to be able to live on and, and pass on our values and what we believe in. Yeah. That's a big step. I mean, that's, that's a huge step. I mean, you can be incredibly successful on your own and make your own name and, and do well. And like you said, maybe even become a millionaire depending on what the market says, but to be able to do that and then step away and the thing keeps going without the, I mean, really without the founder's energy and drive, that's usually what it is. Like some people, they just have the energy, they have the drive, they know they can make the decisions that are needed to be made to keep the thing moving forward no matter what, right? But yeah. once you remove that, a lot of things just fizzle out. I mean, you see it all the time. Founder exits, the company kind of spends five years fizzling down, and then it's gone, you know? And yeah. it's 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 not easy to, to figure out how does this, how do we make this so that I don't have to be here one day, and it still goes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a completely different thing when you do that really hard in the entertainment business because I guess like we just said it's the name behind the show you know like Meat Eater for example 
if Giannis and Steve leave Meat Eater, is, is Meat Eater going to still be there? I think a lot of people would say, yeah, they're big. They're doing all kinds of things. they got lots of employees. But you never really know. You never really know how much of Meat Eater is, you know, Steve behind the scenes just providing the energy and the motivation to keep the thing running. Absolutely. I mean, let's just take the best example there is would be Joe Rogan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If Joe relieves, there is no rogan experience but, yeah <laughs> so the most the most powerful podcast in the world is, is dependent upon one dude yeah yeah that is crazy and well it's it, i think that's what makes it great but that also like you said there once he retires it's not like jamie's just gonna switch sheets in the in the joe rogan podcast continues like it's done yeah that's what makes it so unique is is joe rogan <laughs> yeah. and how he handles things and how he goes about those things yeah, I'd like to hit a million combined downloads in my career for the podcast. That would be an amazing goal. I think he does, yep. like, what, 15 an episode? I'd, I'm <laughs> sure a ton. Yeah. If, if Spotify was willing to pay him 100 mil, I, it must be a ton. I heard recently that that's done now. Oh, really? I Maybe it was just clickbait, but I heard something like Spotify's backing off on their whole you know, campaign to – attract all the creators and that he's no longer maybe going to renew with them. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't even say it because it probably was just clickbait, but, but yeah, your point stands. If someone's going to give them a hundred million to do exactly what you're doing today, just post it on our site. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But so yeah, for us, as far as from the, from that's part of the reason that we're expanding outside of just the, the entertainment space, I guess, if mm. you want to call it that category is because we do want to build, you know, build a, a, a brand and a company that can live on past just what we're doing and, and can be able to provide, you know, um, really stable jobs and pay employees well, you know, benefits, all that fun stuff uh, and build something bigger than, than just ourselves. And I'm sure it can be done in the entertainment space alone. In my experience, I think that's probably one of the most difficult ways that you could do that. Yeah, unless you're, like, so big that you can launch it on your name alone. Like, you look at, like, Kylie Jenner became the youngest billionaire ever because she launched a makeup company. Well, it's like that's a unique situation. I don't think you can necessarily oh, do that just because you're the biggest name in hunting, that people are just going to buy yeah. your camel line. But it happens. There, there, I don't even know if the bar, the market is big enough to be able to make it a billion a billion dollar product like she has or, or family of products. Oh yeah. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, if anyone knows it'd be meat eater. I mean, once you think that they're the biggest entertainment company in the business right now, maybe Drury's, I mean, they're pretty big and the Lukowski's and bone collector, but yeah, I feel like meat eater. Well, Drury's all them. I mean, they're big, but there's nowhere near a billion, you know, Unless that's they're a, making lots number. of like passive income investments on the side, like every booner we shoot is like a twenty grand paycheck, and we just go buy an apartment building with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's I'm, a big. Well, number. that would still be going outside of the yeah that, outside of true. the industry to make it at that point. You know, true. I think. I mean, if you said like retail, sure, Cabela's, Bass Pro. Well, and that's hard. Got to be worth a billion. That's hard. But that's to also count. all of the products. Yeah, that's hard to count Meat Eater then because they bought FHF, they bought First Light, they bought a lot of these. They bought uh, what was the other one? Um, Phelps Game Calls. Like they're they're now they're becoming a retail company in addition yep. to a media company. So then it's like, well, they hit a billion, but ninety percent of it was because they're selling product. 
Yeah. And they got well, and 150 like Kylie Jenner. Stuff. Yeah. If you took that as like that's one category, so that would be saying, okay, there's a bow company right now that's worth a billion. You know, that's in my opinion, if you were going to just compare apples to apples, you'd have to have a company that's selling one product or one line of products. So you can't go to game calls and then yeah. the boots or you got one because all she's selling is makeup, right? Well, that one thing I think made it. Yeah, I don't know. It's That's a good question. Like, I don't, if you told me there's a billion dollar bow company, I'd be like, I haven't heard of it. I don't know what you're talking that's a, about. That's, <laughs> uh, that's what I'm saying is I think anything in the outdoor it, where it was like hunting specific, I don't think there's even, I don't even know if the market is big enough to support that for one specific deal. Yeah. I'm going to just Google how big is the hunting industry in total. <laughs> it's definitely got to be in. <laughs> well, the market size of the hunting and trapping sector in the United States reached approximately $850 million in 2022. So, okay. So, yeah, so, there's no billion-dollar bow companies. <laughs> so you better be really, 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 really good at marketing. Well, yeah, but you don't need to be. They're like, yeah. you know, I bet I, I would be willing to say confidently, if you are the person that hits a billion dollars in the hunting industry, you, you lost your why along the road. Oh, probably for sure. I mean, you're talking, you'd have to be owning the whole thing. Yeah, you'd be owning the whole thing. You probably wouldn't even hunt that much. You're wearing a suit and tie to work. You know, it's just like, what you started this to have fun with your buddies and your family, and now you're like, you know, board of directors meetings every day. You know, I don't need to, I don't need a billion dollars. Yeah, no, me neither. Unless the land no. in Iowa keeps going up. I think that's going to happen. <laughs> so you might need it. <laughs> Yeah, I do. I might need it, but but uh, thanks for uh, thanks for being here today, Warren. And I don't want to eat up too much of your time, but I think it was a really cool perspective of you know not only raised hunting but kind of raised outdoor industry in a way. You know, sounds like from yeah, absolutely dang near birth, probably for sure your brother's birth. Your dad's been dabbling, and then you guys have been along for the ride the whole time, and now doing it full time. So, yep, yeah, pretty fortunate for sure. Awesome, yeah, and we'll have to get you guys back on to the the other podcast eventually, the Western Rookie podcast. Start telling us some of those stories from the the bear hunts and the elk hunts. Yeah, we can do that. We've got some pretty good ones. Awesome. Well, we'll wait till they drop the episodes drop before we pick them apart on a podcast. That way, your viewers have something to look forward to. But okay, yeah, we can do that. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's been fun. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, and thank you for listening, folks. <laughs>